There are many reasons to regard Jonathan Edwards as an original and venturesome thinker, yet his placement of beauty at the heart of his theology may have been the boldest stroke of all. End quote. That's the bold claim of Dr. Michael McClymond on page 94 of his book, The Theology of Jonathan Edwards. Beauty was the center of his theology because beauty was at the heart of Edwards' understanding of the living God. As Dan Ortland so wonderfully captures in his forthcoming book, Jonathan Edwards on the Christian Life, quote, Beauty is what makes God, God. Quoting Edwards, God is God and distinguished from all other beings and exalted above them chiefly by his divine beauty. Ortland goes on to explain, quote, not sovereignty, not wrath, not grace, not omniscience, not eternity, but beauty was what more than anything else defined God's very divinity. Edwards clearly believed in the other truths about God and saw all of them as upholding and displaying and connecting to God's beauty, but none of them is definitive of who God is in the way that beauty is, end quote. As we will hear today, not only was God's beauty at the center of Jonathan Edwards' theology, the beauty of God was an allurement that captured him and a force that thrust his ministry forward. Edwards leveraged his vast intellect and his healthy vocabulary and used every sermon and book and journal entry to capture something of the beauty of God and then to share that truth with others. The breathtaking beauty of God opened his eyes, it changed his life, it filled his heart, and it propelled Jonathan Edwards to become the prolific pastor and theologian that he became. We put Jonathan Edwards scholar Dr. Michael McClymond on the line to explain this more. He is the co-author of the book, The Theology of Jonathan Edwards, a landmark 800-page volume published back in 2011. From his residence in New Haven, Connecticut, I asked Dr. McClymond about Edwards' bold stroke his theological emphasis on beauty, and I started by asking for a good definition. In the first place, how did Edwards define beauty? Well, well, uh, beauty is, um, he, he, he explains beauty in terms of um, the notion of proportion and disproportion. He starts in a very kind of classical way, the classical notion of beauty. I mean, think of, you look at a, I don't know, you look at the Parthenon, okay, the, you know, the temple built, to the goddess Athena by the ancient Greeks. What is it that makes it beautiful? Well, you know, later um, scholars, art historians, and so on, look at that and they, they, they talk about the sort of the arithmetic ratio of the sides to one another. This goal, it's called the golden mean. There is actually a particular mathematical proportion that's embodied in the building. So there's something almost mathematical about the, that kind of beauty. And Edwards, in his, some of his early uh, jottings in his notebooks, he drew dots on the page and he showed how the, you know, if, the, if one group of dots were a mirror image of the other, that there would be a sense of proportion on the page that wouldn't be there if, if the others were just scattered in some random way. So he starts with this notion of proportion, but then Edwards goes, launches into a very deep direction because he wants to say that there really is a spiritual, a physical world and there's a spiritual world. And for Edwards, the physical world is only a shadow of the spiritual world. He, he reverses the way that the typical modern secular person thinks, in which they think, you know, the chair in front of me is a really solid thing. If there are spiritual beings and they're like ghosts or this sort of ethereal entity that don't really have much substance to them, Edwards starts the other way around. It's like the chair is, is a shadowy, ghostly thing. God is like a granite boulder, absolutely solid. So he, he reverses those things, right? And on that basis, he says that the beauty of God is primary beauty, 
whereas the beauty of the beautiful runway model, the beauty of the sunset that you see overlooking out across the Pacific Ocean, as I did years ago when I lived in San Diego, um, those are those are just shadows of beauty. The real beauty is the on the spiritual level, and that beauty consists in what he calls sweet mutual consents. This is where God and a holy soul are in complete congruence, agreement with one another. Um, the, in the model of that, we were talking earlier about the Trinity, but would be the Son's complete conformity to the, the will of the Father. That's the most beautiful thing in the universe because it indicates a, a total consent. Uh, human marriage, human friendship, at least at their highest levels, would certainly, for Edwards, uh, include elements of, of this spiritual beauty, this primary beauty that would go beyond a mere uh, mere outward attachment. So if you took Edwards' theology into the realm of human relationships, you see how different that would be because of just a mere two, two good-looking people that, that want to, you know, get close to one another, that was that's merely an outward thing compared to a deep and uh, a, a genuine spiritual beauty. Edward seems to take his cues from passages like 1 Chronicles 16, 29, Psalm 29, 2, Psalm 96, 9, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. So God's attractive beauty and his holiness are, are deeply bound up together, it seems. Beauty, beauty and holiness are almost interchangeable. And Edward has his own unique vocabulary. He uses the term excellency. Uh, which is often has it's that which just stands out, which shines out. Of course, holiness, as as I think many of the listeners know, has a notion of being set apart. Kadash, or uh, or hagios in Greek, is sort of that which is set apart. And so, God is infinitely holy. He's infinitely beautiful. Yeah, they're very close. They're closely related ideas in Edwards. Yeah, yeah. So God's holiness is His attractive beauty. Um, yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I think um, and the, if the, attra- the attraction takes place through the spirit called the Holy Spirit, um, I think those those ideas are um, are connected to one another. Uh, there's definitely a distinction in Edwards' thinking between uh, mere uh, spectator, a spectator approach to reality, and a, a sort of participant approach. I mean, um, beauty. One way of defining beauty is beauty is that which you cannot see without appreciating it or without being attracted. If you if you look at the painting, the picture, and you don't feel any attraction, then you haven't seen the beauty. So uh, beauty, so beauty is that which involves participation. To be attracted is to be drawn in to participate. On the flip side, there's a there's a beauty that's not beauty because it offers uh, a false participation or the illusion of participation. Uh, pornography comes to mind as an example. There's there's no relationship offered. Uh, not with the object, and certainly not with God through it. It is a form of uh, attraction that purely appeals to selfish desires. Right. And Edwards would call that, to flip to the other side, not consent, but dissent. Um, it's based on a lie. You know, it's based upon uh, this imagining of a relationship that, that doesn't exist and actually wouldn't and couldn't exist. As some people said, you know, if Miss April walked into the room and saw you, she wouldn't give you the time of day. <laughs> so the idea that the the male uh, fantasizes, or it could be female, I guess, fantasizing about an image, but you know, pictures a relationship that isn't there. There's there's something that is out of accord with reality. Uh, Edward used the word odious as a sort of opposite to mean ugliness. It's, something is odious, literally speaking, in Latin would have would something that evokes hatred, whereas amiable is the opposite, evokes love. 
Now, Edwards had a complicated notion of beauty that he talked about part, there were partial beauties and then there was universal beauty. Something could be beautiful uh, or look beautiful within a partial frame of reference. And, and I would use an analogy, uh, the best analogy I could think of as a guitarist is um, there are certain chords that you play on a guitar that sound jarring, like a, a seven-sharp nine chord uh, you go to, from uh, A, you know, major to a B flat, seven sharp, nine. Okay, that, that does a, if you just hit the, that, that second chord, it sounds really strong. If you play it within the jazz progression, it, it has its own proper place. And, um, and so Edwards thought that, for instance, take the character of Lucifer, okay, you know, and, and how about the great, or the great, um, the great villains, you know, in world literature? People enjoy reading stories, watching movies in which they're villains. Why? Because they are perfectly evil, right? They're perfectly adapted to evil ends. You know, the the Joker in Batman, he's just totally evil. He's just totally... And so you're waiting to see, oh, I wonder what plot he's, you know, hatched now in order to destroy, uh, destroy um, um, you know, Gotham City. So people enjoy that. And that would, Edwards would consider the case of partial beauty, that if you just look within the framework of, you know, knowing how to destroy the city, you know, the Joker works out within that narrow frame. Now, when you look within the broader framework, is it a good thing to destroy the city? No, he's not beautiful. He's ugly. He's hideous in that respect. And that would explain one of these features of literature, why we tend to have this aesthetic uh, fascination with evil as well as with good. So Edwards' Edwards theory of beauty can accommodate some of these these divergences where there there are things that that in some limited way look attractive or at least interesting to us, even though they're not intrinsically good. Interesting. And Edwards seems to stress the, the beauty of the untainted creation, you know, the sun, moon, stars, mountains, oceans, spiders, you know, products of God's handiwork. Did, did Edwards leave any clues for how Christians are to enjoy the God-given gifts and the man-made pleasures of, say, jazz music or baseball or golf or painting or novels or operas or other cultural artifacts like that? Well, I think you may have gone to... Uh to see the Turner uh, landscapes rather than the uh, um, than the um, John Singer Sargent portraits or the uh, the Picasso abstract or uh, let alone Jackson. I don't know what he would have said about Jackson Pollock. You know, paint, paint thrown at a canvas. I, I see it as just an area where Edwards wasn't particularly concerned with this topic. I think you could take some of Edwards' principles and apply them to man-made beauties, but the beauties he was particularly concerned with were natural beauties. He he thought like like most. Christian thinkers and Christian Platonists from ancient times on that God had implanted uh, beauty into the world that He created, and that and that that beauty could um, be uh, could help us to we we could see reflections of God's own beauty. There, there's a caveat though on that particular point. There are some who suggest that you know that beauty is a sort of bridge to the spiritual life and. And one of the implications you could draw out from that is, let us say, the, the, the symphony crowd, you know, the people who are more aesthetically oriented, are somehow on the fast track of a spiritual life. Edwards didn't think that. He didn't think that, you know, just being able to appreciate outward or secondary beauty necessarily brought you closer to God. He argues that explicitly, and I think that's a, that's a good point. It, it almost worked the opposite way. He thought once you saw and, under, and experienced the beauty of God, you would then be able to look around in the world around you, the natural world especially, but also in human life, and see reflections of God's beauty. But you could start from the other end and have a, 
I don't know, you could be, a, you know, an illustrator, an artist, a fashion designer, a life, have, live a life preoccupied with what he calls secondary beauty, but never make the, the jump to understanding primary beauty. And so it seems for Edwards that regeneration is really then the key to aesthetics and epistemology. Yes, exactly. Regeneration is the foundation of his whole epistemology. His whole theory of knowledge is founded on regeneration. Regeneration is the first thing. And that's what really distinguishes Edwards from theological modernism. You look back at Schleiermacher, Schleiermacher had a lot to say about beauty, but there's this almost evolutionary sense that like as you you know, you begin to understand beauty as physical, you sort of ascend up this ladder to come to understand God and Edwards thought without regeneration, without that 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 vision, that capacity to see uh, spiritual beauty as something given by God, you wouldn't you wouldn't ever see God at all. So we've talked about beauty and, and touched a little bit on ugliness. How, how would Edwards define ugliness? Well, ugliness is um, it, it really could be understood as the you know the converse of, of beauty. So it, it it's not consent; it's dissent. It's um, a, a community. If, if heaven is a world of love, um, hell is a world of hatred. Hell is a world where no one agrees with one another. Uh, I, I was watching, sorry, I was watching C-SPAN this morning, though, listening to Republicans and Democrats go at it. So I won't draw all the implications from that. But we actually have, we do, in all kidding aside, we have a political system in which there's, there's, there's a lot of, of mutual accusation. I guess that would be, you know, if you follow that out to the limit, that would be Edward's idea of, a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of an ugly um, scene. And I, I think we've all, we can turn on Jerry Springer too, right? We can see the, the accusations, the cry. And, and we also see the beauty of a family where um, people love one another and even, even are willing to set aside, you know, sacrifice themselves, set aside their personal interests for the sake of others. And that's, that, that's something we, we, we delight in, in, uh, in seeing. Yes. It's not that we have not stepped into deep water already here in this interview, but let's step into even deeper waters for a moment. So how does, how does Edwards relate beauty with being? Or maybe I should ask, um, what comes first for him, beauty or being? Well, I mean, being is the most general principle um, you, can, you can start with um, in, in any discussion. So, you know, I, I say if you're, if you're doing a, a charades game, you know, you, can, you could act out chair or hamburger or a lot of words. Try to act out being. <laughs> how you do it? You, you, it's like you can't do it because it's everything. So you, how do you act out everything in front of, you know, uh, so you're, uh, you're, your observer, sir. Um, so beauty is the first principle. Now, Roland de Latra, uh, the late great ex- expositor of Edwards' theology of, of beauty, thought that beauty came before being. That doesn't make sense to me because um, uh, I think you have to have being at the as a starting point. Plus, you also have to have plurality. If you uh, if you had a, a, a philosophy of total oneness, if there were only one being in the world, like some of the Asian Eastern philosophies, kind of pantheistic, you couldn't have beauty because you have to have consent. You have to have distinct uh, being, being or beings. Um, but well, I, I guess we have we have in the, in the character of God, we have uh, not beings, we have persons within the one being of God. So there's distinction there, but there has to be distinction. There has to be consent. And, um, 
you know, uh, beauty is could be opposed on the other side to dissent, and of course that's connected with ugliness. And maybe on some sen- some sense we could connect ugliness, odiousness with evil as well. When Lucifer rebels against God, he is at odds with with God, and to be at odds with God is really to be at odds with the way the way good to go against the grain of the universe, so the, the way that things are. Interesting. Edwards has a high view of the fallen but untainted beauty of creation. Uh, He loved to go out in nature. Typology is a huge deal for him. What protected Edwards from the temptation to become a mystic? Because he he doesn't seem to go in that direction. I think he is, um, and maybe this is controversial, but I think he's closer in some ways to some of the Christian mystics than one might think. He's not a traditional intellectual intellectuals read book they're men of you know a man or woman of letters reads things gets interested discusses gathers ideas talks to other people about and um it's sort of the that discussion of ideas that drives the uh the 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 writing and and the, the the literary production edwards was really drawn by the beauty of god it was almost as if in his in it almost at the very beginning of his spiritual life and his conversion he had a vision of god's glory and god's beauty that was just so overpowering that he spent his life trying to capture it and to put it into words it's um and so i mean you don't write 73 volumes of 500 pages each unless you're driven or and I, what I'd say he's not, well, maybe I, sh- I shouldn't say driven, not so much driven as drawn. He's drawn by this beauty. I used the analogy in, with, in something I wrote of an experience I had of stumbling into the Russian cathedral outside of Jerusalem and seeing these men with beards and swinging incense and chanting Church Slavonic and all the icons. And it's like I, I and my friend, the door was cracked open, but we had to go in. We had to see what was there. And we were just, it was so spectacular looking around. I think that's kind of what happened to Edwards. He he saw something so beautiful that he spent his whole life trying to expound the ultimately unexpoundable, you know, what what went beyond anything he could say, and he was distraining. So so in that sense, there is a, um, there's, if not mystical, maybe you could say ineffable element. The ineffable is that which goes beyond mere verbal description, that Edward said that to try to describe the spiritual life to someone who hasn't been regenerate is like trying to describe the sound of a Mozart symphony, you know, to a deaf person. Well, he didn't say Mozart symphony, but he talked about the, use the analogy of music and use the analogy of trying to describe a beautiful uh, artistic work to a blind person. And so, so our language is, I think, in Edward's view, is limited in terms of how much it can capture of the reality of, of God and God's beauty. And in that sense, Edwards is not a rationalist. He doesn't think that our human words or human concepts fully grasp the reality of God. And I, and I, and, and I think that's good. I think it's good. It's a good corrective. When, when it comes to beauty and trying to perceive God aesthetically, it seems like the conversion, this awakening to God's beauty, reorients everything else in the Christian life. This seems to explain, I mean, Edward's own experience himself. Would you agree with this, that once a sinner is awakened and alivened to the beauty of God, it seems that many of the things in the Christian life seem to seem to really snap into place on their own? That's exactly right. In fact, that you can you can find that right in the text of the personal narrative. As soon as he says, he said, "There came into my my there came into me says a, a sense of the glory of the divine being, and as it were diffused in it." 
And then he talks about how he wanted to be caught up and be wrapped with God, R-A-P-T, or it's spelled different ways in different uh, different renderings. But uh, in the very next paragraph, about a paragraph or so after, he says, the appearance of everything was altered. And then he says, I saw basically some glimmering some of, of the divine glory wherever I looked, in the sun and the moon and the stars and the mountains, uh, uh, the hillsides. And and one of the most striking signs of his whole change of perspective is, is in the is with respect to the thunderstorm, because he said he used to be uncommonly terrified of, of thunder. It just really frightened him as a, as a young person. And he said now he would situate, put place himself on the hillside as, you know, picture yourself in, you know, New England hillside and there's a thunderstorm rolling in the sort of line of black clouds. And he said he would position himself to... Um, to hear the awful and majestic voice of God in the thunder. So he's hearing God in the thunder in a new way, and he's rejoicing in it because it's, and not just the power of God. You know, sometimes Calvinists get a bad rap as people who just, you know, just worship a God of power, cowering before an overpowering God. But, but Edwards has both the sense of the power of God and also the gentleness and gracefulness of God. It's, it, you get them both reflected in Edward's writings. So a few pages later in the personal narrative, which, by the way, I highly recommend for anyone, the first starting point reading Edward's, the personal narrative, easy to find by Jonathan Edwards, because it's not very long. It's only about 15 pages, and it encapsulates his spiritual life. But in the personal narrative, a few pages later, he said he imagined his soul like a little white flower, that is opening its petals to receive the beneficent rays of the sun. And it's a very, it's, it's, it seems it's a very receptive image. It seems very feminine. You've got a lot of masculine, you know, striving, you know, you, get, you know, the, the macho reform guys, right. who are really, you know, men of God and striving. And, uh, and you think of that as well, that's very Calvinistic discipline, energy, striving, but then there's a receptive side of, of receiving, absorbing, sort of marinating, if you will, in God's presence. Edwards had a unique ability to reconcile a lot of the dichotomies and divisions uh, within the Christian life. Yes, Edwards is very unique. And speaking of his originality, maybe I'll close on this. Um, on, on page 94 of your book, A Theology of Jonathan Edwards, you write this, quote, There are many reasons to regard Edwards as an original and venturesome thinker, yet his placement of beauty at the heart of his theology may have been the boldest stroke of all, end quote. Those are strong words. Well, I, what's interesting is I don't think Ed, Edwards, I don't think it was intentional. I don't think Edwards sat down and pondered, now how can I say something really original? <laughs> I just think he, he just was given by God such a powerful um, experience. Um, one of the things I, I note is when you read in the personal narrative, I keep coming back to that just because it's a, it exemplifies so many of these points about beauty, is that when Edwards is talking about um, ordinary, everyday life, he's had a conversation with his father and how he built a booth in the swamp and was praying there. And the language is kind of pedestrian, it's kind of plodding. But look at what happens when he starts talking about God. He starts, it, it, starts to, the, it starts to sing. He's not just speaking. Or he's going from prose to poetry, if you will. You know? It reminds me of a, of a, a little uh, thing I heard. The Stephen Sondheim, the, you know, the, the, the great um, um, uh, right, you know, musical composer, was asked, uh, you know, well, when do you put your songs in the musicals that you write? He says, well, I let the dialogue go along 
you know, as far as it can. And then there's a point where it can't go any further. That's when the song comes into the musical. And so the music sort of, and I would say when you're reading Edwards, the, when he starts talking about God, the music really starts and it's completely genuine. I mean, there's nothing affected about it at all. He's not striving for effect. He just had such a, a deep, um, just uh, experience of of God, and it just it's just unmistakable because he's just completely caught up. It's like asking the the man who's just got engaged, "Tell me about your you know about your fiance," and his face lights up and everything. And so, I think that the beauty emphasis is just something that came through in a very unforced way in, in everything that Edwards wrote. That was Dr. Michael McClyman joining us from New Haven, Connecticut, the land of Jonathan Edwards. Dr. McClyman, you may remember, appeared on an Authors on the Line episode back in November of 2012 when we talked about the Trinitarian shape of Jonathan Edwards' theology. I'll close with a quote from John Piper's book, God is the Gospel, page 106. Quote, The greatest lesson I learned from Jonathan Edwards is that God is shown to be most beautiful and valuable when his people see him clearly in the gospel and delight in him above all else. In other words, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, which means that you never have to choose between your greatest joy and God's greatest glory. End quote. That is beautiful. And for more details on how faith is the beholding of Christ's beauty, be sure to check out John Piper's book, one of my favorites, uh, which is titled Future Grace, and especially chapter 15, A Taste of Spiritual Beauty. Well, thank you for listening to this long delayed episode of the Authors on the Line podcast, the first episode we have released in seven and a half months since back in October of 2013. Goodness. Well, we're back and hopefully with monthly episodes to come in the future. As always, this free podcast is supported, produced, and distributed by Desiring God in Minneapolis, and it happens because we have generous financial donors like you, so thank you. If you'd like to join us and financially support the ministry of Desiring God, please go to DesiringGod.org and click on the top of the page where it says Donate. You can subscribe and find a full archive of episodes by searching for Authors on the Line in the iTunes Store or watch for new episodes online at DesiringGod.org forward slash blog. I'm your host, Tony Ranke. It is very good to be back. Thanks for listening to the Authors on the Line podcast.